News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Katie Honan here with Professor Christina Greer and Harry Siegel. Hello there. Hey. So let's jump right in with just some of the news from another jam-packed week in New York City. Flacco the Owl, who flew the coop from the Central Park Zoo more than two weeks ago and has eluded his would-be captors ever since, will remain a free bird, zoo officials said this weekend. Those officials explained that they've seen him now consume and extrude enough prey to be confident that he can make it on his own in the big city, mostly in Central Park, but also flying to Fifth Avenue at one point. Here's hoping that Flacco, a Eurasian eagle owl, fares better than Barry, the beloved barred owl who died last year in Central Park in a collision with a truck. That was actually in 2021. I'm sorry. I don't know what year it is. But we later reported at the city via a freedom information request for the necropsy report that Barry also had a potentially lethal level of rat poison in her system that impaired her flying. So Flacco, if you're listening, do not eat the slow rats. Staying with animals, rangers removed an emaciated and lethargic four-foot-long alligator from the water near Duck Island in the southeast of Prospect Park on Thursday, with the beast promptly nicknamed Godzilla, taken to the animal care center in Brooklyn and then to the Bronx Zoo, where it's being cared for and evaluated. It's the sixth alligator in the city that the care center has seen since 2018, a spokesperson told the New York Times. Shifting over to people, FDNY Commissioner Gloria Kavanaugh made a second appeal to the feds to do more to regulate the big batteries, the lithium-ion ones that e-bikes and scooters for delivery workers and many others use, that caused a record 219 fires in the city last year. Kavanaugh has also been facing a revolt from her chiefs, several of whom have resigned their ranks in protest, though notably have not left the department altogether for what they've called, quote, breaches of trust, unquote. After she called out many of the chiefs behind closed doors for disrespecting the chain of command and being more concerned with their perks than public safety, uh, with the recording of that confrontation later getting leaked to the Daily News after chiefs began uh, publicly resigning their positions. The first female FDNY commissioner is trying to quell that revolt by bringing in retired assistant chief Joseph Pfeiffer, a 9-11 hero who lost his brother. FDNY Lieutenant Kevin Pfeiffer on that day, and then served for 17 years as the department's first chief of counterterrorism and emergency preparedness as her new number two. Also on labor news, Mayor Adams and the city's largest municipal union, DC 37, struck a contract deal last week. Members will get more than 16% raise through 2026, which is significantly more than the city had budgeted for. It's about 3% a year. They budgeted for about 1.5%. And the administration says it'll find those savings somewhere. While also agreeing to a, a pilot remote work program for many uh, city workers, obviously not like cops, teachers, uh, people, uh, crossing guards, so forth. It's the first signed contract under Adams and will likely set the pattern for many, many more labor contracts that need to be set, including for teachers and police officers. And finally, Ron DeSantis visited Staten Island on Monday for a law enforcement rally where he was joined by former New York congressman and, too close for comfort, Republican gubernatorial candidate Lee Zeldin to attack bail reform and the Empire State's approach to criminal justice. Adams, who's himself criticized New York's bail reform, 
ripped the Florida governor's visit in a tweet beforehand, but not talking about uh, the policing issues, saying the presumed Republican presidential candidate could learn something from, quote, a place where we don't ban books, discriminate against our LGBTQ plus neighbors, use asylum seekers as props, or let the government stand between a woman and health care, unquote. In his appearance at this rally, the first of three DeSantis is planning to have in different loose cities, uh, DeSantis claimed the crime in Florida is at a 50-year low. He did not acknowledge that Florida's violent crime rate is higher than New York's or take questions. So, Chrissy, Republicans running against New York City is nothing new or subtle, but when it comes to public safety rhetoric, how much space is there really between New York City's Democratic mayor and Florida's Republican governor? Yeah, I mean, I've always said that New York is a lot more purple and red than we'd like to believe. And the fact that DeSantis knows that he could come to New York City and have a substantive crowd, he knows that he could have law enforcement since that's the big, you know, crime, 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 uh, Republican talking point. Uh I, I think that there are a few dynamics that are interesting to me. One, the fact that Adams preemptively tweeted out, essentially, you're not welcome here. Um, I don't think that Adams detractors care that he did that. But I, I do think that it's uh, for those people who are like, he's he's basically a Republican. It's like, no, actually, he's not. Like, there are certain things that he does that are conservative and I don't agree with at all um, that are akin to Republicanism. But at the end of the day, he rejects it. Um, and then two, I think the dynamic between DeSantis and Zeldin um, is pretty interesting because, you know, Lee Zeldin won't go away. You know, like he'll try and figure out, you know, is he going to run it for Senate? You know, he clearly has some ambitions because he came a little closer than many people expected. But it also, you know, that's this is Trump's backyard, too. I know Trump's been hiding out in Florida, but the fact that Lee Zeldin has welcomed DeSantis makes it a very interesting 2024 dynamic for the Republican presidential race just because. If Lee Zeldin was really in the Trump camp, then he obviously would not be on stage welcoming DeSantis. So I think I don't, I'm not a Republican strategist, nor do I want to give them free advice. But I do think that it's going to be an interesting primary race for Republicans because they've kind of painted themselves in a box by saying, you know, I was talking to my colleague Jason Johnson about this. You know, they all said that the election was stolen. Fine. So if it was, then Donald Trump is like, well, then I'm the heir apparent and it's rightfully my seat. So why is anyone running against me? So they're going to have an interesting and most likely contentious and really nasty uh, primary season. Uh, and it'll be curious to see how Lee Zeldin situates himself because he clearly has his sights set on a different kind of future as well. And do you think Eric Adams can keep uh, straddling or threading this needle where you have GOP rallies where many of the talking points, uh, Lee Zeldin was talking about how you, you arrest a person and that same person is out two weeks later and you have to arrest them again. The really could be taken directly verbatim from Eric Adams' uh, transcripts uh, in which he's hitting uh, DeSantis on all these other fronts and trying to point to the difference, talking about how he can get along with all these other Democrats, but at the same time is pushing for all these rollbacks of criminal justice reforms. Like, is that, and, and particularly given some of his haters, as you were bringing up on the left, like, is that a, a sustainable position as we get into the presidential cycle? Yeah, Larry. I mean, I think that's like the million dollar question, right? Because on the one hand, I think Eric Adams is a really, really good politician. 
So policy-wise, you know, we're not always on the same page, but politician-wise, he is a marvel. So how he straddles New York City politics could be an interesting thing. Like, as I've always said, though, Harry, don't forget, as much of, you know, the rhetoric of Eric Adams, you know, sort of, he can be tough on crime and, you know, policing, there are a lot of lefties who, like, outwardly criticize him, but secretly agree with him, you know? And so I don't know if that necessarily translates into votes per se, but it it also, if the rubber hits the road and depending on who his Democratic primary challenger is, I mean, like, think about Maya Wiley and her comments on, you know, decreasing police presence on the subway. That was not something that, you know, her supporters really supported at the end of the day. So I think the nuance of the Democratic voter in New York City is something that I think Eric Adams understands in a myriad of ways, because don't forget, we can't just think about the Upper West Side, Upper East Side, you know, five neighborhoods in Brooklyn, New York. That's usually the electorate, but that's not Eric Adams' electorate. So when he says a lot of things, he's not talking to us. He's talking to other people in New York. And I think we always have to remember there have been so many neighborhoods and parts of boroughs who have been thoroughly ignored these past, say, like 30 years, I would argue. Um, And he's tapping into that. Because you know what, Harry, in, in conclusion, I was listening to our podcast episode from last week just to make sure, you know, I didn't say anything crazy. And <laughs> as one it does. Would be too, it would be too late. Right. It's like, oh, there it is. Um, but you were talking about Adams talking to all these, like, small presses. It's like, no disrespect to the small press. But, you know, why is he taking so much time to talk to these people? And it's like, but that's that grassroots sowing the seeds. That's what, like, those old school politicians do. So it's like, so in the margins, if it's a close race, it's like, yeah, he does have people who feel like they've talked to him. He's listened to them. They've met him. It's it's a type of politicking that is lost uh, for a lot of politicians. But he's he's very attuned to um, people who aren't necessarily like in our set, if you will, like not in the media set, not in the like major neighborhood set. Um, and I think that that could serve him very well in the long run, even if it seems like some of his policies are somewhat contradictory and statements are contradictory. Oh, indeed. And if I could just just briefly, um, voters are complicated. You know, I think if you're like mm-hmm. a strategist or an overpaid political consultant, you know, doing next to nothing and you think you can map out, obviously you can do that using data. But at the end of the day, like people's life experiences, people's perception, even if it's not based on fact or reality, that goes into what they who they vote for. So people vote a lot on feeling and emotion. And even if they're, you know, usually a Democratic voter, they might change their mind. You know, maybe, maybe their catalytic converter got stolen and they said, I'm really fed up. I'm voting for someone else. So at the end of the day, you know, humans are very complicated and people can be wild cards. So I think um and, and it seems that Mayor Adams at least understands the 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 voters a lot better than a lot of other candidates because he just has more experience, I guess, being out there, which he often points out. So speaking of complicated citizens and candidates, uh, my former colleague at the uh, Daily Beast, uh, Wajahad Ali, made a little news earlier this week when he uh, ripped into uh, Nikki Haley, the daughter of Indian immigrants, as a alpha Karen with brown skin and the perfect Manchurian candidate for white supremacists and racists. Yep. And again, you can feel... And Andrew Yang in there, too. Veering into the the, the 2024 
cycle here. Uh, Haley, unlike DeSantis, is now a declared candidate. Chrissy, we were talking just before we got on air about some of the suspicions that farther left people, particularly white farther left people in New York, have about Eric Adams that sometimes take a similar, if slightly less dramatic form, where they see him fundamentally as a cop, as opposed to a black mayor. And again, I'm just curious, uh, your read on some of those dynamics, and if this is a group Adams wants to make up any ground with, if it's one, it's useful for him to have as opposition, as he focuses on his base, just how that dynamic plays out. Because I think it's been in the background for a lot of our politics over the last few years and likely to be even more so going forward. Yeah, you know, I defer to Martin Luther King on this one because he warned us about, you know, the white moderate, but then, you know, he and Malcolm X warned us about the white liberal. I just think that there are a lot of, you know, far leftists who just are, there are no on Eric Adams. So they can't hear or see anything that he does as beneficial to the city, which I think is a short-sighted way to analyze anyone because Eric Adams, as we know, is a complicated figure and he slides across the ideological spectrum. And I think, you know, my interaction with hardcore progressives in this city who oftentimes want to talk about their understandings of race, (laughs) which it's very new to them, but, you know, they're hard in the paint. Um, It's frustrating. And so I think Eric Adams is like, I'm not going to dedicate a ton of time to people who were an immediate no, a permanent no, and who were in many ways late to the party when it comes to racial justice and understanding anyway. Um, But they're, you know, super, super anti-cop, which fine. But um, I I think Eric Adams is, is more focused on kind of the people who are in his camp, the people who understand there are going to be certain ways or certain policy spaces where they can work together. And then the people where it's like, okay, we might be transactional friends for now. We might be temporary allies. We might sort of have a temporary coalition that we build and we can move on from there. But the hard nose, I don't really like see the point of really chipping away at them. Like so many of the hard nose, it's because this is the first time ever they have a candidate that wasn't someone they selected. So they're they're feeling a little off kilter because they don't have access to him or anyone in his orbit in a lot of ways. So I think Eric Adams understands he's got limited time before um before, you know, we start talking about primaries. I think he's probably aware that he'll be primaried. I think he's probably aware that he'll be primaried from someone from the left. So I think, you know, closer to that time we might see uh some olive branches to certain groups and certain sort of policy spaces, but I don't think that that's his his primary focus. I think, you know, his focus is making sure that the city stays safe because if it doesn't, we know as black mayors are concerned, they they never get a second chance. So so speaking of public safety and shifting away from optics for one second, just two other NYPD and justice related uh, stories from this week, we should mention um, a, uh, a review from uh, Matt Katz, a Gothamist, found that more than one in four people locked up in city jails does not now get the court on time uh for their hearings or trials and that's the highest rate of failure um ever that we know of since records became publicly available in 1999 also the nypd for the very first time released breakdown data on car stops 
and those showed that officers pulled over vehicles nearly 675,000 times in 2022, uh, nearly matching the number of street stops at the height of stop and frisk, and showing that, as with stop and frisk, Black and Latino drivers were stopped at disproportionately high rates. Uh, Altogether, uh, police officers conducted 13,000 searches from those 675,000 car stops and made 15,000 arrests from them. Katie, one other story I wanted to uh, touch on Mm -hmm. that you've been reporting on for the last several weeks involving the Department of Youth and uh, Community Development. And my understanding is that a big part of youth development is sleep. And yet the uh, the New York City, you've reported on the city, the newsroom, uh, no longer is letting uh, teenagers and young adults like actually close their eyes and rest at these drop-in centers, which just seems wild. Uh, can you can you just fill listeners in yeah. on your reporting? <clears throat> any updates? What's going on here? Yeah. So I guess, you know, from the beginning, it actually came to our newsroom from a tip from someone who works at a center. And at first, it seemed sort of like a budget story, right? Like they're cutting these programs, which made sense to me, given our budget issues. Um, So when I did speak to this tipster um, and then later to DYCD, they, they, you know, a city agency, if you want to get a city agency to respond to you quickly, ask them something that's incorrect because they they love to correct you. And they said, no, 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 no. What are you talking about? We're not getting rid of our program. We are just asking the five overnight drop-in centers, one in each borough, that have been, you know, it started in 2018 to provide overnight service. So what do you have? Shelter. Uh, it's obviously, it, it's not legally a shelter, but they provide laundry, <clears throat> food, clothing, and an opportunity to connect with someone to get services, that sort of thing. But um, they told these service providers to remove any furniture that was used for what's always sort of been known as resting because it's, again, it's not legally a shelter. There's it's in commercial buildings they are not zoned for this, but they allowed these providers to, you know, have cots or recliner chairs that would make it comfortable for people to quote unquote rest. Right. And if they sleep, that was sort of always allowed, but they told them remove all the furniture. R- resting is prohibited, which was really alarming to these providers because obviously if someone, a 17 year old comes in at three in the morning, right. The, op- the likelihood of them getting, to a shelter right away is slim and they want to, they want sleep. So I've now done two stories. You know, the initial story was really shocking to people because it does seem very cruel and inhumane. And the second story is they, they finally met with the providers. And um, that was another complaint. The providers said the city didn't consult with them before they just dropped this on Friday, January the 13th in the afternoon saying this is not no longer allowed. Um, really upsetting to these providers. You know, I know the California Center in Manhattan, they're still allowing people. They told me that they wouldn't feel comfortable, you know, forcing people to, um, you know, no longer sleep at their centers. And, you know, I I can understand why the city did this if there's some sort of issue, if there was a problem, but they've never been on the record to say exactly what it was. And that's been concerning to a lot of people. And obviously it just... There's not enough shelter beds. There's not enough facilities. City Limits had reported that they're actually down certain um, shelter beds because the city stopped working with a service provider based on it was core services, which their adult shelters. There have been some investigations by the New York Times into double dealing and that kind of thing. So yeah, it's it's a, it's a real problem. Um, I'm continuing to report on it, trying to you know it's very complicated and very sensitive. You know they don't allow reporters into these centers for obvious reasons, or maybe they're not obvious just because they're mental health 
services and for young people in a crisis. So it just seems that you have young people, the most vulnerable people at perhaps the worst moment of their lives seeking help and they can't even close their eyes and sleep. It just, uh, I mean, the, uh, the, the, the DYCD commissioner, you, you wrote a follow up with him confirming your reporting, even after saying it had been falsely reported, young people are not able to rest. And then he says, that's not true, but, uh, we need to make clear the providers need to discontinue the practice of allowing youth and young adults to sleep overnight. And if the whole idea of these drop-in centers is to give really vulnerable young people like a safe place to go, the idea that you can't rest. Or rest comfortably. My God. Yeah. You could still, I guess you could still close your eyes on a, on a hardback chair, but um, you know, they had to hide cots, which by the way, the city had allowed these cots and these recliners initially. They even put it in the RFEI when they first, um, they said you could have this stuff. Um, so yeah, you know, everyone loves beating up on the press. I think they, when I asked them specifically what I misreported, they pointed to a tweet of mine where I did not put resting in quotes. So that's what we're dealing with, trying to get any information, even on the record, you know, um, about what's going on. A lot of people are afraid and they don't want to talk to to people who are actually just asking simple questions. Ugh. Just ugh. Katie, got to shift gears for a second and and uh uh we're in we're in full disclosure mode here. Oh no. You have said off air that you are loving a different podcast. <laughs> a podcast from a man who will not show up on our podcast, but is now hosting his own podcast, who also happens to uh, moonlight as the mayor of New York City. <laughs> What's up? It's true. I listened to the third edition of the Get Stuff Done cast yesterday, and I thought it was very entertaining. He interviewed SBS Commissioner Kevin Kim. I will say, I I thought the mayor is a great interviewer. The questions, you know, of course, it's not, he's not really asking super hard hitting questions, but got a little background on, on the commissioner. I mean, I'm also biased. The commissioner lived first in Sunnyside and then Bayside. And then the mayor made a little joke about moving on up, which I found very funny. Um, So it was the, the hyper local Queens joke that really, I think got me, you know, I found myself on the subway, like smiling, listening to it. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know who's producing it. It's about a 19 minutes. Um, I know, Harry, the, the production value was a little too much for you. Um, a lot of background music. Yeah, I kind of like it. And that's the same background music if you're, you know, I guess I don't know who's working in sound design in the mayor's office. But that heavy drum background music is also what's used in his weekly, like, week in review video recaps. So we have a serious audio engineer working for the mayor. I don't know. I don't know if it's an original song. I don't know if that's something. But yeah, I kind of thought, you know, I thought it was entertaining and I could see the point even beyond just trying to avoid the press. But like, you know, sitting down and um, speaking to people in his administration. I mean, Decast does a podcast. OEM was doing a podcast. I guess why shouldn't the mayor? I don't know when he's filming these. I mean, recording these. I don't know. It's, he has like, I think they do it upstairs. It's not a full podcast studio, but they sit around a table with mics and headphones. It's not like we're doing it over Zoom, you know? So the production value is higher than FAQ. But I thought it was good. So sue me, you know? I know he won't come on. Um, maybe if we keep, maybe if we say that the podcast, his podcast is great, he'll 
want to come on and talk to you, Harry. We'll see about that closing <laughs> word here. Adam, you will edit out that part about the production values being higher. <laughs> well, maybe we should try and just have dinner. What's the restaurant again? <laughs> Lobaya. Is that what it's called? Lobaya Asteria. I think yes, Lobaya Asteria. I think he I eats dinner like much later than I. I mean, I think he's eating dinner when I'm in my like third REM cycle of sleep. You know, right, right. But I still think maybe we should just roll up. Chris, yeah. I think- oh my gosh, fancy seeing you here. Mind if we just sit down with all three of us? Sit Didn't down. Did the New York Times week? do that for a month? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to try this Branzino that's played out like a, a bear on the rug. I have heard the Caesar salad is very good. And I do like a good oh, really? Caesar salad. I do love a good Caesar. All right. Okay. I guess we have our plans. Let's make it happen, Gavin. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. Our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Find it all at popula.com. Our hosts this episode were myself, Christina Greer, Katie Honan, and Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. Our engineer is Adam Kamara. Thank you, listener, for joining us this week and making it this far. Be kind, be well, and we'll see you next week with more. <laughs>